Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. David Bequist, who is the founder and director of the Center for Medical Tourism Research, uh, the very first academic research center devoted to medical tourism research. He is also a professor of management at HEB School of Business and Administration at the University of Incarnate World in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, welcome, David. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very honored to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. So before we uh, set off, I want to set the context uh, for the listeners. So you, you have been involved in medical tourism for a long time. Um, w- w- you know, broadly, what is medical tourism? Thank you. That's a, it's a very good starting question. And uh, I get that question quite a bit. And it's uh, my definition is perhaps more broad than what you may see in uh, other articles or other researchers around the world. Um, it includes both medical tourism and health tourism. It yeah. includes the other kind of health seeking behaviors that typically lead to a person to travel beyond their local region uh, for something that is health related. So I would include things like dental tourism in that. I would include uh, medical surgical tourism, including tourism for cosmetic surgeries. I would include wellness, um, perhaps even spa-like procedures uh, within that um, that family of, of a continuum of, of behaviors. I would yeah. also include things that are a little bit more uh, niche, but uh, also included, which would include like deaf tourism, people seeking doctor-assisted suicide in, yeah. in clinics in Switzerland, for example, and uh, people also traveling for things like uh, surrogacy or fertility care. Um, around the world. So all those procedures kind of go together in a, in a continuum, again, of health-seeking, consumer-based, um, consumer, uh, consumerism, if, if yeah. you will. 
and and also they're tangentially related to retirement tourism uh, whereas the many times the people that retire internationally, in other words, a country not of their origin, uh, they typically will engage in health-seeking behaviors in that country in which they retire. Okay, okay. So, so that is a, that is a very broad definition. So essentially, yes, it is. A- anybody who is uh, resident in country X, traveling to country Y, uh, for any sort of health-related service, right, um, which can be, you know, things that we, we typically think of, like surgery and things like that, but also more broadly wellness, non-essential uh, procedures, uh, as well as uh, more niche-type uh, uh, type, uh, activity, too. Um, and so... So I know that this has been an expanding arena for at least uh, 15 years. Um, what, is the, what is the current status? I know 2020 is going to be a really weird year, and we'll get to that <laughs> yes, in is. a few minutes. Uh, but what do we know uh, if you look at 2019 statistics, and if you look at U.S. as sort of the, the, the home country, uh, what is the traffic uh, statistics, both inbound and outbound, uh, for the U.S.? Well, the the so the, the one other thing I'll, I'll add to the inbound and the outbound is also don't forget the domestic medical tourism, which is increasing yeah. um, throughout the world, um, is becoming very important in countries uh, in uh, like the United States as well. Right. So the in terms of inbound outbound, obviously uh, pandemic aside, the the there was a general overall trend, not just in the United States, but but around the world, for an increasing um, increasing amount of consumerism and travel for healthcare. A lot of that is being driven by affluence. So typically, as the economic situation within a country improves, particularly around disposable income, that allows for people to have more choices. Um, numbers are difficult to uh, to come by, uh, particularly in places like the United States, because um, much of the travel, uh, not only in the United States, but throughout the world, is done to private facilities. Private facilities sometimes see these numbers as proprietary um, secrets, uh, things yeah. that they don't want to give out to their competitors. So it's very difficult to get good estimates about um, numbers. Yeah. Uh, some estimates I can give you, the, these can be um, aligned or projected to the U.S. in some ways. Um, the, the Europeans are probably some of the most more frequent medical tourists in terms of a region. Mm-hmm. And so there was some estimates that was done by Eurobarometer that showed that it was about 4% of all Europeans at some point in time will travel across borders to go into a another country. And that's not domestic, obviously, that's international. Hmm. Uh, and so that was primarily travel within the EU region. Um, the, the most common medical traveler in the world um, is most likely a, a Chinese citizen, uh, at mm. least uh, was uh, up until obviously the pandemic and the virus. Uh, the So therefore, you would find a lot of the countries that are receiving a large number of visitors typically are in that area, which is the Asian area, particularly, uh, say, Southeast Asia. And so you, you see large numbers being reported in countries like Korea and others uh, because of that. 
Um, yep. Interestingly, the uh, the I mentioned the economics tends to improve these numbers. The it tends to be a little bit based on the research we've seen a bimodal distribution, mm-hmm. meaning that we see people typically in the upper echelons of of uh, say. Uh, socioeconomic status, uh, the affluent, the wealthy that are traveling, but also the people that are uh, underprivileged or people that don't have access to what they perceive to be good care, they tend to travel. And if if you look at Malaysia, for example, their numbers are uh, high, mostly because they tend, they live right next door to uh, Indonesia and Indonesians travel into um, into uh, Malaysia, yeah, by by in large numbers. There's actually reports of uh, traffic uh, through the airport into Kuala Lumpur that then Indonesians then get onto a bus and that bus takes them directly to hospitals uh, there yeah. in in Malaysia. Um, the, so uh, again, I'm using these numbers to to understand the impact. Um, although several Asian countries report very large numbers, uh, a number uh, a country that you would expect to accept to receive a large number of patients, and and please understand these numbers are the official numbers. There there's some numbers that are not reported as as such, but medical yep. tourism visas, uh, which exist in several countries, for example, like India, they number in uh, and numbers I think in 2017 and around the 200,000 of the official mark of uh, medical tourist. Yeah. So there, there's, there, there's assumably many more people that are coming in, particularly from uh, say Pakistan that come into India and the other uh, nations that surround India that are not being categorized as medical tourists. Hmm. And those come in. Same is true in the United States. Uh, a great, deal of medical tourism that goes in and out of the United States comes through the southern border and a little bit through the northern border. And so very little of that is categorized as um, as medical travel because we don't have good numbers on there. So we, we don't uh, have a lot of surveys that show uh, either uh, Latin American uh, people that are coming into the United States or Americans going out. Uh, going to other countries. Um, There are some surveys that show secondary and primary destination or uh, uh, reasons for traveling internationally by Americans. And typically those numbers are in the single digits uh, for people that say that they're traveling for health or wellness related reasons. Uh, Single digit meaning percentage wise? Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, single digit in terms of uh, percentage wise. Yes. Okay. Okay. So yeah, yeah it's so pretty interesting, David. I, so, I would expect um, yeah. in general that we're we're less than Europeans. Uh, that so I would suspect if you look at the number of Americans traveling abroad, probably one to two percent of the number of people coming into the United States, um, it would be easily assumed that would be in the hundreds of thousands, but it put, could potentially be more. Uh, but that's, again, a wide variety of health-seeking behaviors into the United States. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting. So one of the things that, you know, that didn't jump out to me is the, the domestic uh, medical tourism. So I know that uh, Cleveland and Houston are two cities uh, that sort of focused uh, focused on this, right? 
Absolutely. And it's actually, interestingly, the uh, Gallup did a study um, nearly, I want to say, 10 years ago, and they found that it was about a, a quarter of the population of uh, several Asian countries. I think it was 14 different Asian countries they surveyed traveled domestically for healthcare. Um, and it's well known that, for example, in China, Western China, uh, the the healthcare providers are not overly uh, well thought of. And so uh, Chinese citizens that live in the more rural, agrarian, western part of China will travel into the eastern parts of China to the large cities on the seaboard to, to be able to get access to healthcare. So um, we find a lot of those health-seeking behaviors uh, around the world. And in the United States, um, it's actually, it's, it's, uh, it's quite larger than people expect. Actually, yeah. I have some uh, research that'll be coming out very, very soon in, um, in a, a prestigious publication. And uh, I can reveal a little bit of what uh, that article is going to talk about. We actually uh, looking at some estimates of what's called uh, employer bundled contracts. That's yeah. uh, employer domestic medical tourism like Walmart and several other countries, excuse me, companies are engaging in. And there were some estimates that by this year, by 2020, now, of course, those those numbers are all up in the air at this point, but <laughs> yeah. by this year, um, potentially upwards of about 14% of every man, women, and children in the United States mm. were covered under a bundled contract. In other words, a domestic medical tourism contract that could allow them to get one or more procedures in places like um, the Mayo Clinic or uh, Cleveland Clinic or Baylor Scott and White or some of the leading centers of excellence in the country. Yeah. And uh, so that that's an outstanding number that if you think about it, that you probably know somebody that is covered by a self-insured employer in the United States that has access to travel to one of the best locations perhaps in the world for a particular procedure. And uh, that's that's kind of a hidden trend in domestic medical tourism in so, the United States that so most to, people don't know about. Yeah, so to understand the bundled contract a bit, uh, David, so this is a Walmart or some self-insured employer saying, or contracting with, let's say, Cleveland Clinic, and uh, and essentially having a fixed uh, cost type contract on a covered life basis, or is it fixed price for a procedure basis, uh, or it could be both, right? Yes, so that you're essentially correct. That's a that's a a very simple summary of of what's going on. Essentially, the employer who maintains their own healthcare cost instead of outsourcing those to an insurer would then develop a contract, typically with not only the facility but also the physicians that are involved in the facility. In many states, physicians are not employed by the hospitals, yeah. so in in that case, they have to negotiate with both parties. Both those um, parties, the hospital and the, the physicians, agree to negotiate and take a essentially uh, w what you would consider in business to be a um, uh, a 
um, volume contract. In other yeah. words, they're accepting larger amounts of volume for a reduction in price. Um, in general, if you wanted to benchmark, you could say that potentially it could be upwards of, say, a 30 percent uh, price reduction. Um, Interesting is the the benefits that kind of go along with that. Typically, the physicians and the hospital, in order to to get those contracts, because they tend to be uh, a higher margin than what you what you would expect from a traditional, say, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, or Tricare uh, payment, or and and could potentially be even a better profit margin than a private insurance payment because the because they're interested in those margins they will throw in things like they will guarantee and in, in walmart's examples uh, we've seen some of the research on or the some of the details of the contract and they'll actually guarantee the procedure in other words uh, if a patient were to receive an outcome that they didn't want or that uh, something were to happen that they'll do all the rework uh, the readmissions as they call it in healthcare uh, for no cost so it's that's bundled in and then the employer to the employee typically because the savings in many cases could be in the tens of thousands of dollars for the employer per employee that goes for one of these procedures oftentimes because they're saving tens of thousands of dollars they'll give it to the employee for um, no out of pay expenses in other words nothing out of pocket no co-pays no um, they'll even throw in a plane ticket and a hotel for not only the person, but also a loved one to go with. And then oftentimes they'll give them per diem while they're in the location. Uh, let's say they're in Cleveland. Uh, they'll, they'll pay for that. So it's a really fascinating bundled contract deal. Yeah. Um, and it, it appears to be one of the future trends that is going to decrease healthcare costs in the United States. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's sort of a win-win for both parties, right? From an employer's perspective, uh, self-insured employer has a portfolio of risks that they have to manage. And they're basically trying to download some of that risk to a provider. And the provider, I would imagine, David, is in a much better situation to understand that risk and price that risk and manage that risk, right? So... Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's sort of a win-win in both directions. Um, and absolutely. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, uh, you, you, you've got it absolutely right. The other interesting thing is, again, by focusing on these centers of excellence, which is essentially, if I can be honest, this is what medical tourism is to an extent, is it's the consumers engaging in seeking of the... Um, uh, Michael Porter from Harvard uh, wrote a book, Redefining Healthcare, a few years back, that where he suggested that a lot of the discussion, particularly in the United States, was focused around cost or quality as separate constructs when actually said, you know, when we look for products and services, typically what we do is we see them as a combined concept, which is uh, or construct, which is value. And so if you look at the, the health seeking behaviors of these consumers, typically what they're doing is they're looking for value. Well, it's the same thing these employers are doing. And so they go out and seek centers of excellence. These centers of excellence, interestingly, um, really fascinating when you get down into this. Uh, that's why this whole area of research um, as a 
as a business professor, as a scientist, I, I feel like I'm in a Michael Crichton novel where, <laughs> you know, you're, you're dealing with um, sociological concepts, uh, psychological concepts, business concepts, you know, economic concepts, uh, clinical, um, clinical research that's going on. These centers of excellence tend to not only offer higher overall levels of care, in other words, higher outcomes, better outcomes, yeah. they, they do it cheaper. Um, centers of excellence, uh, according to LeapFrog, have 42% less waste because they tend to engage in um, uh, kind of uh, economies of scale. They, they tend to have more factory-like outputs. Right. Um, there's, for example, there's a, a very famous uh, Indian uh, eye hospital, and I, I'm looking for, oh, that, I, I think I'm saying this correctly. It's Aravind Hospital. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, um, the eye doctors there, typically uh, there was a report, this is a few years back, I think it was 2010, they suggested that they do 2,000 surgeries per year versus the national average, which was only 400. Yes. So because they engaged in so many surgeries, they are more efficient at it. And also uh, healthcare, medical, as most people probably understand, is very similar to athletics. And typically the more you practice at it, the more you do it, the better you get. So the, uh, the surgeon for example, at a Cleveland Clinic or a John Hopkins are typically much more proficient at, at their craft than just by just by the volume and experience, right? Yeah. So so yeah. everything co comes together in this center of excellence. And if you think about it, it's very similar to everything that has happened in terms of globalization uh, around the world for the last um, you know forty plus years in terms of autom automobile manufacturing, where you have these fantastic uh, automobiles produced in places, um, for example, like Korea and Germany that become well-known, Japan, obviously, before that. You have uh, very good wines coming out of places like France, where they they're, they have much uh, ballyhooed, and, you know, uh, good products that come from certain segments. And then those, uh, those areas, like Silicon Valley, tend to attract experts that come in. And then it, it just builds this infrastructure and allows for this uh, a wonderful center of excellence, which leads to better innovation, uh, better outcomes, and lower cost. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, uh, from, uh, I think, the Mayo Clinic, there was a study out by the Mayo Clinic many years ago that said that they tend to pay less for physicians than other facilities. And the reason is, if you're the young rock star physician that just got out of school and you want to go learn from the best, you'll yeah. go to one of these places and you, you'd be willing to accept a contract that is less because you're actually interested in expanding your knowledge base and getting better. So you'll go to a place like the Mayo Clinic and take less. And therefore, the Mayo Clinic actually keeps their costs down while actually training better practitioners that end up doing better outcomes. So it's yeah. just, it's this amazing synergistic effect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to dig a little deeper into the value uh, aspect uh, as well as a decision-making process for an individual. So one of the things that you mentioned, David, which I find uh, very interesting is that the growth in this market, health tourism more broadly you said has sort of a bimodal distribution. Um, so uh, you said as aff affluence increase, increases, 
uh, we actually see um, the, the health tourism numbers going up. Uh, my instinctual reaction would have been that this is a cost-driven decision process. Uh, but what you are indicating is that there are, there are sort of two distinct markets. Uh, one is perhaps more cost-conscious uh, consumer, and the other is actually uh, seeking, uh, seeking perhaps better, uh, better skill and better technology. Okay, could you, could you um, describe you know, why, why those, uh, that by model distribution exists? That's a, f- a fantastic question, and I'm glad you, you're asking about that, because if you look at the, for example, what we've seen over the last decade in terms of immigration and uh, the massive immigration that we're seeing around the world in a variety of areas, not only in uh, places like uh, Central Asia and the Middle East, uh, but also in places like uh, Africa and Asia, um, a lot of that immigration, one of the first things that you ask when you ask people, why are they immigrating? They'll say opportunity, but then actually they'll, they'll touch on a couple of other areas, which is they want to have um, better, a better life for their children, meaning better education. They want to have uh, better economic opportunities, better jobs. They also want to have better health care. And so if you, oftentimes you look at immigrants and, and there's actually been several really wonderful articles, um, several of them have been produced by a, an exciting young researcher in medical tourism. Uh, I think it's uh, Dr. Jin, if I'm remembering her name right, um, is uh, has produced several pieces on immigration behaviors around medical tourists and uh, those medical, those immigrants tend to be more involved in medical tourism, both going back home, Mm -hmm. say later after they've established themselves, and also engaging in uh, health-seeking behaviors within that new country. Um, We we knew this from research from a few years back that we found that in the United States, if you look at the number of Americans going abroad, um, Hispanics and Asians tended to be more frequent uh, medical tourists than, say, um, uh, people that have been in the country for several generations. This meaning, um, say, first or second generation Hispanics or Asians coming into the country. Um, a, A example was was um, Filipinos that um, that had uh, married into American f- families and then came to the U.S. would oftentimes go back to the Philippines, engage in both tourism and medical tourism mm-hmm. back in the Philippines when they'd go back there uh, for essentially saving costs, but also kind of combining with a opportunity to go back and see their family. Mm. Um, that we, wherever we see large diaspora, uh, diaspora, excuse me. Um, for example, uh, there was an article written about Polish uh, people that had traveled inter- internationally and were working outside of Poland that would still travel back to Poland for medical tourism. Mm-hmm. Uh, wherever you see that, you tend to see. Uh, again, health-seeking behaviors. And then lastly, they, this surprises a lot of people. Um, again, India uh, tracks the number of medical tourism visas that come into the country. And so what they do is they uh, regularly put out numbers about where those medical tourists are coming from. The vast number of, of medical tourists coming to India are not from 
the United States. They're not from England. They're not from any of the countries you would suspect. They're actually from uh, particularly sub-Saharan African countries. Mm. And what you see is in sub-Saharan Africa, people get to a point where they, uh, the affluent, have access now to money, but not enough money to, say, travel to the United States or England yes. to um, to really live in style. Um, but so what they'll do is they'll travel to India where they can get moderately priced but very high quality health care. And uh, so that's a, uh, become a, a, a very well-known destination for people in, say, Nigeria. Mm. Uh, North Africa, interestingly, uh, was uh, had a opportunity to go to uh, Cairo, go to Egypt a few years back. And uh, they see a lot of inbound travel, as does Turkey from other North African yeah. uh, countries. Um, you know, for example, in Libya, with all the problems they had, if people want good healthcare, they would travel into Egypt, into Cairo. So uh, again, and that those people were typically not overly wealthy. Uh, they just, they were either uh, affluent or they were uh, less right. affluent. Yeah, it also sounds like, David, you know, certain countries uh, seems to have approached this strategically, right? Maybe uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines, India are examples Correct. where they have really kind of segmented the markets and, and, and created products that appear to be, um, you know, more attractive, those, those segments at the price points and really a convenience point too. Uh, which is you know, medical tourism visas and things like that, making the whole process easier to handle. And, and so, you know, when we think about an individual's decision to, to seek these, these types of products, uh, there is a risk question, there is a return question. So cost goes into return. On the risk side, uh, obviously, this is a very complex product, and oftentimes, if you're doing it for the very first time, there are so much uncertainty and unknowns uh, around it. And you had a, a paper, uh, David, uh, traveling abroad for medical care, U.S. medical tourist expectations and perceptions of service quality. And uh, there is a sort of a six uh, attribute scale for service quality, right? Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. So in general, what uh, the what we found is that regions and or uh, specific facilities can be become known for having certain types of attributes. Mm. Uh, again, constructs, if you were attributes, the, um, the the idea is that if those things become um in the consumer's mind become salient to become a, a, a part of what they expect yes. for their healthcare um, seeking behaviors, then they'll be more likely to travel for those types of things. And so we found that certain types of um, constructs in terms of reliability, for example, um, lend themselves to people seeking more healthcare. Mm. Uh, from that location. Yeah. And, and what are the other attributes? Um, things like empathy, tangibles, and things like that? 
Well, so the, there's a really fascinating aspect. It's related to this research, and I wanted to uh, touch on this as yeah. well. Is that the, the, after we had done this research, there, we had found that there is a interesting connection to a medical tourist, actually, and we had had a, a, a tease of this before our research came out, before we started on the surf call uh, research, and then it came up afterwards as well, which is that medical tourists tend to be more satisfied with their travel than traditional healthcare patients. In other words, patients that go to a local facility that receive a procedure tend to be less satisfied overall than medical tourists. Mm -hmm. So a couple aspects to that that the, the need to be touched on. One of the things that came out of the Center for Medical Tourism Research, original research, was that we found that about 70% of all these medical tourists, as you would expect, engage in tourism activities in that local, in that locale. In other words, they'll go to the beach, they'll try local cuisine, they will take in some type of entertainment activity. So the the whole um, genre or gestalt, if you will, of medical tourism appears to include not only the uh, facility, the providers, but also the location, the atmosphere, the tourism locations, all of those things come together in a very complex mix in order to determine not only satisfaction with the uh, medical tourism procedure, but also in terms of what their drives are. Mm -hmm. Uh, another researcher uh, that is at my university, we had done a, a small piece on deaf tourism, uh, doctor-assisted suicide tourism into Switzerland. And yeah. we found some evidence that was, was quite striking. Um, it was that the people that were going, that were, say, somebody that had terminal cancer that was traveling for doctor-assisted suicide in Switzerland, there was a, a comment by one of the travelers that said that they were going to choose um, to die the way they wanted to so they could, and this was their exact quote, have a better life. And so as we started to get into the research literature, we found out that um, oftentimes medical tourism seems to be related to a um, kind of a journey, a walkabout, a opportunity to go and do something that will uh, change your life, make your life better, improve your life. Mm -hmm. So it, it's it's the all of these things, all these interesting aspects come together to basically to make that a journey. Yeah, yeah, to to make that decision. Yeah. So. You know, if you look at it from an economic perspective, uh, David, you know, just abstracting it a little bit. So you have, you know, a bundle of benefits that you're going to get when you engage in this activity. But when you come back, it doesn't end there, right? There could be a stream of benefits or disbenefits that could accrue uh, to the individual. Um, what I mean by disbenefits is, you know, if there is a follow-up requirement, uh, there could be, you know, other issues that um, that that uh, the individual might get into. So, so are there guidance, decision guidance available? Um, I mean, it, 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 like you say, it's a very very complex decision, uh, at least for the very first time, for an individual to make. How do they go about doing that? It, it seems uh, really difficult. 
Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. It is extraordinarily difficult. Uh, there's been several studies that have looked at the content of major websites regarding healthcare information. And uh, most of those studies all agree that it's the majority of information available around healthcare procedures on the internet is either incorrect or out of date. Yeah. So therefore, uh, you know, the, the, the consumer <laughs> needs to be uh, aware that most of the time what you're going to read on the internet is uh, unfortunately uh, incorrect most of the time. <laughs> right. yeah. So therefore, but the interesting aspect of it is that um, health-seeking behaviors uh, have grown basically proportionally with the growth of the internet. And uh, what we've seen is, uh, for example, it was a, a study done by Pew Research that found that uh, health-seeking behaviors were basically one of the major uses of the internet or searching for health yeah. related information. So it was uh, essentially number one use of the internet was email. Second most uh, common use in the United States was social media. And third most common use was looking for healthcare information. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's ubiquitous to the human condition. As, as soon as you hear that your mother has a, a lump, one of the first things that you're going to do is you know, look up to find out what that lump is and you know what's the uh, chances that she potentially has cancer. Um, that will be very common for almost anybody that has access to the internet. And interestingly, uh, people that have mobile access to the internet are even more likely to look up health information through the internet. So as that health seeking behaviors uh, through the internet have increased, we've seen medical tourism increase. And I suspect it's more than a correlation, it's causation. Uh, the, the majority of people that travel typically are looking for information on the internet. Uh, around the world, there are very different modalities of distribution. In other words, how people get to medical tourism. Uh, there's medical tourism facilitators, which is found more frequently in places like Asia and Europe. But if you look at the majority of travel uh, in both not in the United States, but around the world, the majority of people are self-servicing. And what they're doing is they're finding information from not only the internet, but interestingly growth of forums, and websites that are specific to choice in healthcare are, are creeping up all over the place. Um, I had a former graduate assistant that uh, went to a website called Surface Hippie, which is for people that get uh, hip resurfacing and hip replacement surgeries. Uh, he was a um, was wounded in the military and was looking for options for his hip replacement surgery. And so that going to a forum where other people are giving you recommendations and suggestions on physicians and or facilities, it's really a fascinating trend and definitely is something that we're seeing increase, uh, particularly in the, uh, the 20s, uh, 2020s. So one, one of the ways... I would imagine to reduce that risk, both in terms of a decision as well as a selection that individual goes through, uh, is perhaps through some kind of an accreditation process, right? I I, I believe there mm. is a there is an agency that does this, and there's Correct. something like thousand organizations around the world that uh, that are accredited through them. 
Yes. So there's multiple accreditation systems uh, around the world. And um, the, uh, the, some fascinating research that I just presented in, I think it was 2018 in, uh, in Greece, was looking at some of the financial um, findings that we had from these facilities. Uh, th th some people are not aware, but actually several of these facilities around the uh, world that are uh, medical tourism destinations are also publicly traded. Uh, for example, there's a couple in India. Uh, they And so we have access to their financials. So um, based on some research that some of my students have done, I, I pulled up some of these financials, looked at the change in the financials pre-accreditation and post-accreditation. Mm -hmm. And what we found was, was very fascinating and, and somewhat controversial is that accreditation didn't seem to actually impact mm -hmm. the financials overly of these of these organizations. It appears that what had happened is that good facilities that already had good reputations yeah. that were trying to signal their reputation were using a business signaling strategy in terms of accreditation. So accreditation itself didn't appear to have much of an impact in terms of bringing medical tourists in. It appeared that medical tourists were already going to those locations and then they got uh, accreditation. For example, one of the most well-known is joint commission accreditation in order to to solidify that. Uh, the, the old joke we have in, in, for example, business schools is this, if the Harvard School of Business, Harvard Business School was not uh, uh, credentialed, it was not accredited, yeah. would it still be perhaps one of the best in the world? And the answer is yes, it probably would be. Yeah. Um, interestingly, yeah. though, um, the, the so this efforts uh, that I've been doing over the last couple of years, I, I recently joined the American uh, ISO team mm -hmm. uh, around health standards, and we're actually coming up with some standards from ISO around this. Uh, standards are important. And the best practice facilities are constantly looking for standards and integrating standard practices. Uh, it, but the, again, the credentialing or accreditation of those standards doesn't appear to be the end-all be-all. Mm -hmm. It appears to be a sign of uh, owner organization that was good enough to get accreditation in the first yeah, place. Yeah, you, you know, it sounds a bit like a bond rating, uh, David. So market prices, the bonds, and then the credit agency or the rating agency rates them. Uh, yep. So accreditation seems like a, sort of a market following trend rather than, you know, something that is really rating competence. Uh, because yeah. what you're saying is that the market is finding the right uh, organizations with the right reputation, right skills and technology, uh, and then uh, over time, accreditation agencies follow. What is that agency uh, that does this accreditation? So the the there's several organizations out there that offer this. So this is not necessarily an endorsement of any one, but yeah. uh, the American. Um, accreditation agency is called Joint Commission. Their international um, 
brand is called Joint Commission International, but there are other accreditation bodies. And as I pointed out, ISO, for example, is getting into the game. And uh, I'm involved in, a, in an activity here in the United States to develop American-based uh, standards as well that, that could be uh, utilized uh, by ISO and the rest of the world. But uh, I, I, again, I'm, I am a big uh, I'm a big advocate of standards, and I believe in standard protocols, and that's obviously one of the benefits of uh, increased knowledge and, and knowledge sharing around the world. But it doesn't appear to, to be, again, it appears to be more marketing related than it is yeah. Uh, although there are operational improvements. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Uh, one of the other things that came out of the study, and this is, by the way, for all the uh, professors out there, this is why an uh, investment in undergraduate research is such a good <laughs> idea. Um, my undergraduate students came up with this fascinating finding uh, several years back, and I was able to validate it in this research that I sent off uh, that I presented in Athens, which is, uh, this is really fascinating. So investors, if you're listening, this is, you're getting this on scientific sense. Um, so, uh, <laughs> We found that when there was an accreditation effort, for example, in an, in an Indian hospital, all the real estate around that hospital tended to appreciate at a greater rate than the general area. Hmm. In other words, the signaling strategy was a indicator that for real estate development that you should perhaps invest in that area. Right. right. Fascinating. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and then I would imagine location is quite important, maybe proximity to an airport and things like that, right? Absolutely, and and I apologize. I I think I might have sent to you. Um, I had a New York Times article that just uh, was an interview uh, by C.J. Hughes, who uh, covers real estate in the. Um, nationwide in the New York Times, the business section. And uh, it just came out uh, three weeks ago, something like that, three, yeah. four weeks ago. Um, it, and we talked about that location and the also the growing importance of real estate when it comes to medical tourism, because uh, the proximity to a airport, um, my gosh, I'm forgetting the name of the book. Was it Aero? Aeropolis. I'm forgetting the name of the book, yeah, but it was a, uh, oh gosh, it was a very influential book that came out that suggested that the growth of globalization in the future, particularly in terms of international trade, would be centered on having a good international airport. And so, yes, you, as you as you see many times, uh, these facilities tend to be in a location where they're easy to access. Uh, particularly international travel through an international airport. Um, in the um, in this New York Times article, I pulled up some recent research on that we were looking at in terms of real estate at the Center for Medical Tourism Research, which shows that uh, hospitals, uh, particularly international serving hospitals or medical tourism tourism serving hospitals, are typically having hotels associated or even purchased by the hospital. Yeah. Because the margins that the hotel produces are actually greater than the average margin that the hospital produces. So it's actually a, a, a plus positive supplemental income uh, stream, revenue stream for these hospitals. So yeah. really a fascinating uh, trend. Yeah, yeah. I want to briefly touch on another paper, David. So uh, you are comparing here, uh, it's entitled Experienced and Potential Medical Tourist Service Quality Expectations. 
And yes. you're finding a differential between experienced and potential, uh, the, the very first uh, time decision maker. And this has implications, yeah. I would imagine, both for policy as well as a strategy of, of this organization. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure. And a lot of that is uh, due to famili- familiarity. Yeah. Uh, so what we found, again, early on in the medical tourism research is that the people that were traveling were either the people that were first or second generation immigrants. Uh, we also found that people that had business dealings for in other countries were oftentimes medical tourists. So overall, if you had to pick one construct or one element that would predict medical travel to, for example, an international destination. It was typically somebody's ability, uh, excuse me, knowledge uh, and ability to navigate that foreign destination. Mm -hmm. Uh, For a person that hasn't been to India before, that is traveling to India for the very first time, um, they part of the experience, the anxiety they may feel is going to be from the fact that they haven't navigated India before. They, uh, they're they not familiar with um, uh, the the uh, vast differences between uh, people that, that uh, are, you know, the, the income inequality, for example, in India, yeah. and the, the differences that you'll see in the uh, zoning, for example, in India. Yeah. So that, that's a striking for somebody that hasn't been to India before. Right. Um, for somebody that has traveled to India several times, when you go there, you you notice the subtle differences, such as the the vast improvements that India has uh, has gone through over the last you know ten years in terms of uh, the quality of life for everybody, the the fact that most people in India have cell phones, things of that nature. So for you, you you're able to take in the experience. Uh, you're less anxious, and you are typically going to be more satisfied with your overall experience than somebody that's less experienced in that country. Yeah, so that history, I guess, um, also gives you a level of level of understanding and comfort, because uh, you know, arguably, you are buying a product uh, that is long term and has a lot of uncertainty, and so it's not only the product's quality, but also the locations. Uh, characteristics that are going to be uh, an important consideration, the decision-making. But, you know, uh, there are also some concerns around the growth of medical tourism, David. So I want want to get your perspective on it. So, you know, one of them is, you know, it's sort of the possibility of healthcare access becoming differentiated by economic ability. And we see that a little bit in this country. And and, uh, that by modal distribution... Um, say slightly different story around it. So I want to just get your get your perspective on it. That's uh, fantastic. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I had done a a fairly concise summary of ethical issues in medical tourism uh, a few years back, and and that was obviously one of the things that came up. Uh, the the potential inequity based on economic uh, situation. Also, the fact that, for example, if wealthy medical tourists are traveling into a less wealthy country, are they taking capacity away from the 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 people that uh, the domestic nationals that live in that country that then don't have access to the healthcare because it's being given to a wealthy tourist? Um, so, 
most of the the data that, and the research that's out there seems to show that investments in healthcare infrastructure lead to more opportunities for all when it comes to healthcare. Yeah. And uh, again, going back to that fabulous, amazing facility, Aravind, I was actually introduced to it uh, by a uh, by Skimia, a, a presentation by a Harvard professor mm. in a class at one point in time, and, and then went into the details of it. Um, it. It's an interesting model because about 60% of all the people that receive care at Aravin's uh, multiple hospitals. And by the way, they've grown over the years. They're now an international hospital system. Yes. Uh, 60% receive their care for no cost. In other words, the 40% of the people that pay yeah. basically pay the overall cost for the 60% that are unable to pay. Um, and this is a true medical tourism strategy because typically the affluent are definitely, uh, they may be in an area that's served by Aravind, but uh, wealthy, uh, for example, Indians and wealthy foreigners will travel into India for uh, the, this these surgeries. And then uh, they then are able to treat the underserved, the impoverished uh, people for no cost. Mm -hmm. The really the only difference is if you ever look into the model, it's really fascinating is the waiting room. Yeah. It turns out the waiting room for the people that pay, they have a nice waiting room, nicer <laughs> nicer places to sit, nicer places. Uh, they also have nicer food available in the cafeteria, kind of an upscale yeah. uh, eatery. Uh, whereas the, the impoverished people that pay nothing, they have a larger waiting room that is a little more Spartan, yeah. um, a little bit more stark. And the, the food served is, you know, primarily, uh, you know, uh, like a take, uh, take, take out, uh, yeah. takeaway bag or a takeout bag. Yeah. yeah. So they, but that is a model that shows this economically that typically when a healthcare facility receives more medical tourists, which tend to be higher margin, higher profitability, typically they expand their uh, services to the rest of the community. And we see that, again, uh, not only just in the United States, but around the world, places like Germany. If you look at the private facilities, many of them are um, uh, parochial or faith-based uh, uh, institutions. You yeah. see the, um, the, that in the United States as well. Um, there's, it's, it's a fascinating aspect that lends itself to more research. I don't know the answers, but I think, I think that medical tourism is again overall a plus positive. In other words, it does appear to have a beneficial impact on the healthcare of uh, the people in, in that region. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think India is a perfect example. I think um, um, uh, areas like uh, Chile. Uh, Malaysia, Singapore has seen uh, a rapid rise in the health quality of, of for their people, not just based on their overall economic situation, but also based on the fact that they're a medical tourism destination. Uh, uh, Korea, uh, Korea has seen, uh, they were already a, a thriving economy, but they've seen even greater impact uh, based on people coming in, and that's led to even better opportunities for the Korean people to have good health care. Yeah, so I, I want to close with, um, you know, your, your recent New York Times um, interview. 
the future looks bleak. <laughs> the pandemic ravages medical tourism. Uh, I guess the tactical effects of uh, COVID is very clear uh, on this industry. But what is your perspective whether this is going to have a long-term dampening effect uh, on medical tourism, health tourism in general? Great question. The um, I, I think a lot of this goes back to the trends of global tourism and travel in general. Yes. Um, obviously, um, d- domestic is affected a little less uh, by the pandemic than international travel has been. I think there uh, most of the the researchers that I've looked at that have been exploring travel suggest that there is pent-up demand right now for travel. There will be at some point a return of of travel. When that travel starts to break out um, after, say, a vaccine has been developed or, you know, you start to get uh, countries that have herd immunity and so they feel comfortable and and, and traveling again. When that happens and that pent-up demand breaks out again, I suspect medical tourism will also have a similar trajectory. Uh, so the, in general, uh, I am I am bullish yeah. on the, the idea of medical tourism right now, currently, in terms of the um, what we're seeing in terms of people traveling for healthcare, it seems to have been obviously um, uh, hurt by the uh, the virus. Yeah, and I would think, uh, David, I'm just speculating here that this might also have. Uh, you know, also have a force toward more of a bundle product. What I mean is that, you know, there is uh, it's a little bit of a piecemeal uh, in sometimes uh, today, right? So you have travel, you have uh, accommodation, you have procedure, uh, you have you know uh, transportation within the country. Sometimes all these things are bought separately uh, by the individual. Uh, if they all could be bundled together into a singular product. Um, that that might be a different different way of approaching it, and um, you know it, there might be more of a trend toward that after this potentially. Oh, a- absolutely! You, you're actually so you you touched on uh, very uh, very succinctly and very intelligently the one of the secrets, and that as the destinations, medical tourism destinations, um, it's been suggested by others that uh, a facility by itself can perhaps become a medical tourism destination or a local or a federal governmental organization can say we're a medical tourism country or this city is a medical tourism destination. It turns out that most of those efforts don't seem to work on their own. Um, we have a best practice example here in the United States, uh, the Houston uh, Medical Center, which is the largest medical center in the world, a big campus of many hospitals and many different uh, facilities, educational and otherwise. They had have had this practice of getting everyone together, uh, local government, state government, federal government, the, ho- uh, the hospitals, uh, the airport authority, the police, the taxi drivers, the Uber drivers, the restaurants. They get them all together and they're all represented on this uh, Houston International Patient Advisory Council. Mm. What this council does is is 
communicate about what the issues are that may affect, for example, an Arab patient that's flying into Houston that's going to MD Anderson. And they they coordinate together and work together and share information and best practices. And that appears to be one of the secrets to being successful when it comes to being a destination is it it takes in many ways more a community than it does just a facility and a doctor right exactly yeah so this has been great david uh thanks so much for spending time with me and uh, good luck with uh with your research and all the things that you're doing in this area Oh, same to you. Uh, what what you're doing in terms of uh, promoting um, scientific thought and uh, what you're doing with Scientific Sense is absolutely fantastic. I, I've been honored to be on it. And uh, thank you very much, Gil. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye. Thank you.